So we'll get started. So you guys asked great question. I love reading the personal reflections and the questions you asked. The cool thing about both the reflections and the questions, it gives me a sense for who you are. And some of you are like, I have no exposure to the nonprofit sector. I don't even know why I'm in this class and I feel in over my head. And other people are like, I want to do a career in arts administration and I want to run the best nonprofit possible. And I just, I'm hoping that this class will help me to be more effective at my job in arts administration. So we have the whole continuum of people with very little experience and not even sure they want any exposure to the nonprofit sector and others who are like all in and saying, okay, sign me up. This is why I'm taking the class. The one thing that a lot of you had said that that stood out to me was this question of, can I make a career in the nonprofit sector? Is it sustainable for like a a full-time career for 20, 30 years, or like the parallel question was, why do people in the nonprofit sector not make any money? Or why is there such a stigma with the nonprofit sector? Meaning, well, you're gonna have to have a side job if you work in the nonprofit sector. And I would say that's a one big issue within this field. And we're gonna talk about it later on in the semester, but really it's this question of, when people go into the nonprofit sector, there's this sense that they've taken a vow of poverty or this presumed vow of poverty. It's sort of like when you meet a, a priest, you're like, oh, well, you shouldn't have a big house because you've taken this vow of poverty. And so it gets imputed on people in the nonprofit sector. And I think that's a wrong way to view the nonprofit sector. And we're going to get into this more. But most of you in this room will not be employed by the nonprofit sector. But almost every one of you is going to contribute money to people or to organizations that are nonprofits. And what you can do is reshape the way you think about salary levels. Because in a sense, it's the funders, the contributors who set this bar of salary levels being, well, you shouldn't, you know, you're working for a nonprofit. You shouldn't be making as much as I do or more than I do. But it's driven by the contributors. And so part of it is just self-reflection of, you know, if you are involved with a church or another type of nonprofit, how do you view the leader of that organization? And what do you think their salary levels should be? Now, on the flip side, I always think it's crazy when you see people in the private sector who are making, let's say, $150,000 a year, and they say that they want double their salary. They want $300,000. And then they say, well, I want $450,000. And they keep ratcheting up what their salary is. Now, part of it is, from my perspective, is you and me thinking about, well, what is the salary that I need to sustain the lifestyle that I want? And my guess is, if you're making $150,000 at you know, midway through your career, that's pretty good. If you hope to have a family or hope to own a home, you could sustain that. And I would argue that you probably don't need 300,000. You certainly don't need 450,000. So there's this imbalance of, in a sense, people in the nonprofit sector are getting by with 50,000 a year. And then you have people in the private sector who are saying, I need more, I need more. And at a certain point, you don't need that much more. It's almost creating a, a middle point or balance point of, and especially thinking about the main concern that the field has is some of the best talent get pushed out of the nonprofit sector because the salaries are not commensurate with their skills and with their activities involved. But we'll be talking about this more and sort of how does the field shift that perception? Uh, how is it created and then how do you shift it into a way where people graduating from college can sit there and say, hey, I want to pursue a career in the nonprofit and they don't have their parents saying, why are you going into the nonprofits? And they don't have funders saying, well, we're going to cap your salary at this because you've taken a vow of poverty. So anyways, I would say you can sustain a career in it, but the field has to shift if they're going to recruit the best and the brightest and keep them in that field. Basically, this lecture is going to look at the history of the nonprofit sector, just sort of how did it emerge, where is it today, and then where is it going in the future. And I'll also make these slides available, so don't worry about trying to copy everything down, but it's more to just give you a sense of what's going on. The nonprofit sector, sort of the roots of the nonprofit sector, and way, way before the nonprofit sector was called the nonprofit sector, way, way back to the beginning of time to antiquity, is this idea of charity. Charity, basically from the beginning of human existence, has been a part of society. And charity is simply giving of your time, talent, and treasures. And this is just part of human society. Not everyone does it, but it's certainly been woven through every culture. A lot of it is driven by religious traditions, where incorporated into the religion is this idea of providing charity to those in need. And so if you think of like time, you might not have a lot of money, you might not have a lot of talents or resources, 
but you have time. And so that's a lot of times the way that each of us enters into the nonprofit sector or enters into the world of nonprofits is by volunteering our time. And so people give their time to help meet a certain need of some sort. So that's, in a sense, everyone has time. Everyone has time that they can give. The next one would be talents. And if you think of it, everyone has a certain talent that they can contribute to meet a particular need. So you think of lawyers doing pro bono litigation for clients. So the client can't afford a lawyer, but there's a lawyer who's a high-powered lawyer in the in the business world, and they say, hey, I donate 10% of my time, of my talent, to helping people who don't have enough money to afford a lawyer. But you can think of almost any profession that you go into, you're developing a skill set and a talent that you can use to help others, that you can, in a sense, donate your talent, your specialized skills. And the last one is your treasures, which, again, we're all probably somewhat familiar with, is what financial resources do you have, but also what other resources. So some of you at some point might have a home and you can use your home as a way to let people stay with you. Or you have a car and you let people borrow your car. So the treasures isn't necessarily just money. Like one of the nonprofits that I work for, we did this annual fundraising event. We used to just ask for money and that was like, let's just keep asking for money. But then we realized, hey, our staff and our volunteers could really benefit from having lower cost uh, dental care. And we could also, every sort of quarter, we'd look for off-site retreats and it'd be really nice to have a cabin up in the mountains to go to. We began thinking, what are the resources, the non-monetary resources that we could begin asking for? So we we basically found a dentist in town. So on our sort of giving card, we said, are there services or talents that you'd be able to provide to our group, to our organization? So we found a dentist who basically said, hey, if you ever need a cavity filled, come to me and I'll I'll just pay, you only have to pay whatever insurance will, will cover and I'll cover the rest. We had a handful of people who said, hey, we have cabins up in the woods that if you ever need to have a retreat, we'll let you use it at no cost. And so it's beginning to think through, like, and the cool thing was, it's like, in a sense, sometimes people are hesitant to give money because they're like, ah, oh, I just, I'm giving money everywhere. But they're like, oh, well, you need to use my cabin? Sure, we'll let you do that. And in a, in a sense, they just gave $500, but it was the equivalent of $500. And to them, it didn't feel like $500, but it felt like they were giving. But it, to us, it saved us $500. So in a sense, when you, and we'll talk about this more with fund development, but charity involves time, talent, and treasures. And this has been woven into society throughout history. Fast forward up to the modern era, and it's this idea of voluntary action. So if you think of the Enlightenment era, all of a sudden people were beginning to have extra time available. Like there was space to do extra things. And this idea of voluntary action, well, if you think of most of life, a lot of things are involuntary. So like when you go to work, that's an involuntary action. You're sort of obligated to go to work or other activities you're obligated to do. But you have a space carved out where you can take voluntary action, where basically you can choose how to spend your time or where to spend your time. And so the nonprofit sector relies heavily on people having the capacity to volunteer, to sort of voluntarily engage in doing something. But if you think about it, in some places, voluntary action is very limited in what they're able to do. And especially the second one is voluntary association. So you have voluntary action where you volunteer to do something like on your free will, you choose to do something. You're not compelled to do it. I mean, like in the U.S., in a sense, joining the military is a voluntary action, whereas in some countries you're obligated to join, you know, two years of conscription in the military. So similarly is this idea of voluntary association. Voluntary association is the freedom to associate with like-minded people, to voluntarily congregate with others who have similar interests. And so I I bring up voluntary association because in some countries, most notably like in China or in North Korea, you're not allowed to voluntarily congregate together. Like it's seen as suspicious activity to where you might be doing something that's in opposition to the government. And so voluntary association isn't sort of this universal right, but it's particularly treasured in the U.S., where basically any group can congregate. They can voluntarily come together. So even groups with nefarious aspirations, so like the KKK, in a sense, 
is allowed to congregate, is allowed to come together. Because in the U.S., we treasure this idea of people voluntarily coming together and the government not stepping in and saying, you can't form this group. So there's some drawbacks to this freedom, but it's a critical component of the nonprofit sector. So one, that we have the freedom to volunteer our time, you know, voluntary action. And the second is voluntary association that we can congregate together. And we'll show how these two components sort of make up the backbone of the nonprofit sector. Then we're going to fast forward up to the U.S. time. And it's around 1850 is when philanthropy as we know it today began. And philanthropy isn't just really wealthy people giving lots of money, but philanthropy is this broader picture, sort of the contemporary word for charity. So philanthropy is giving of your time, talents, and treasures. We tend to associate it with treasures, but philanthropy is also the time and talents as well. And so prior to 1850, here's one example. If you were a wealthy person and you said, I want to start a library because our community doesn't have a library, so I want to donate a lot of money to start a library. It's my philanthropic activity. It's going to be a nonprofit in a sense so that everyone can use and have access to the books because books shouldn't be relegated to just the elite or the wealthy, but it should be something available to everyone. Well, prior to 1850, it was actually illegal for you to set up an institution that would be in competition with the government. And the idea was the government said, no, 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 no. you can't start a library. That's proprietary. That's what we do. Or like if you wanted to start up a school, they would say, no, 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 no. the government provides public education and you can't compete with us. And so if you really care about libraries or schools or any type of other institution you want to set up, you can't set it up yourself. You have to give us the money and then we'll go set it up. So basically what the government says, whatever it is that we're sort of responsible for, you have to give us the money and then we'll go set it up. So there's this intermediary that was going to set it up. Well, Andrew Carnegie, who is sort of the parent of the modern philanthropic world, stepped in and he was extremely wealthy. He stepped in and he said, listen, that's a very inefficient way to run society. And I want to change that. And I want to liberate this massive amounts of wealth that's being generated by these robber barons and other industry magnets and say, I want to create sort of a vehicle for them to distribute their wealth and not just funnel it through the government. So basically, he sort of wrote this manifesto called The Gospel of Wealth. And he said, listen, this wealth that I have is not for my own benefit, but it's basically to be used to redistribute for the betterment of society. So he was the first one of his time, more or less, who basically said, I'm going to take all this wealth and redistribute it to the betterment of society. Before that time, people with wealth would basically take it and pass it on to their children. And then their children would have it and then pass it on. So you have the aristocrats who would basically sort of retain all of this wealth. And Carnegie said, no, I think we need to think about wealth differently. And so he really started modern philanthropy as we know it. Right at the same time, so you have these uber wealthy people like Carnegie and others who are like just out of this world wealth. But then you also had what's called these smaller level individuals like you and I contributing to what's called a community chess. Have any of you played Monopoly? You know that little part in the middle of the board called community chess? And it's like, what is community chess? Well, community chess was basically a community like Bloomington would have this chess where people who had extra money would go and put money in the community chess and then sort of the keepers of the community chess would take that money and like say there was a flood or a fire or something and they would take that money out and redistribute it to the people who needed it. And so it was a lot of small donations into this community chess and every community sort of got on the bandwagon of having one and there's a way to give people that were in need money and funding. So you have these uber wealthy people giving huge amounts of money and then you have hundreds and thousands of individuals giving small donations but really in a sense as we saw in the video Tuesday that most of the contributions come from individuals versus large foundations. So in aggregate the individual level contributions were just as large. Today we don't hear of community chess but we hear of community foundations and most of you whatever city you come from has some sort of community foundation so the Silicon Valley Community Foundation is huge 
I mean, it's one of the, it's the biggest one in the country. It didn't exist 30 years ago because Silicon Valley didn't really exist as a high tech magnet area. So, but these community chests have morphed into community foundations and they're thriving to this day. So that's 150 years later, we're seeing this continuing of this. And we see the continuation of what Carnegie set up with Warren Buffett and Mark Zuckerberg and others who are these uber wealthy people who are setting up these private foundations or thinking of ways to redistribute their wealth. So this gives you some of the context for like, how did we end up where we were? And it hasn't always been the way we see it now. So really the the key turning point was 1850 and it was Andrew Carnegie and it was individuals like you and I setting up community chests. So Carnegie meeting needs versus addressing causes. And I'm going to show a video. It's sort of like a promo video for Andrew Carnegie, but it's okay because he's dead and he did some really cool things, but you might feel like, oh, this is like, sounds like an advertisement. But the good thing about it is it sort of gives you a sense for the philosophy or the thinking behind why would Andrew Carnegie do this? Because again, think about it. In 1850, that was a very radical concept to actually take your wealth and give it away. Before then, it was like hoarding your wealth and keeping it and giving it to your next generation of family. So we'll watch this. When poverty and infectious diseases persist, education remains a privilege, artistic expression is challenged, climate change threatens our existence, and war is all too common. Andrew Carnegie's vision for strategic and forward-thinking philanthropy remains a source of hope and progress in the United States and around the world. Today, more than two dozen organizations worldwide, both large and small, represent Carnegie's legacy and vision to advance education, science, culture, and international peace. Together, these organizations advance a model that guides and inspires our most important contemporary philanthropists and is more essential, impactful, and relevant than ever. a modest home, Andrew Carnegie used his vision, courage, and discipline to become the world's wealthiest man. And at the height of his wealth, he pledged to do something unusual and daring, give away virtually his entire fortune during his lifetime. But he wasn't content to merely share his wealth. Carnegie was committed to ensuring that his gifts would help improve education, strengthen our democracy, and promote progress both at home and abroad. In the decades that followed his extraordinary decision, Andrew Carnegie founded and supported universities, financed major advancements in science and art, created 26 different institutions, advocated for world peace, and built more than 2,500 free libraries. Today, many of these organizations and institutions continue to advance societies in profound and lasting ways around the world. So as you guys watch this, what things just sort of stand out to you or catch you in a way you're like, oh, I never really thought of it that way or didn't know about that? Yeah. It's interesting to see the voluntary redistribution of wealth, you know, like contrasting the climate right now where it's like the government should like, give this that debate, should the government redistribute wealth. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, it's, it's kind of cool to see that he was voluntarily redistributing sure. wealth yeah. in really great ways. Yeah. And in some ways, that's a more compelling vision of when you can voluntarily give it away versus, you know, if someone comes in and says, okay, we're going to tax you X more percent, you kind of give it begrudgingly or you resist it or fight it. Kind of makes me like, what is more effective? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. would that money be more effective, like $25 in the hand of like some up-and-coming artist or something? Or uh -huh. be more effective with like a million dollars in Andrew Carnegie's hands? So, uh -huh. you know? That's a great point. That's something that we'll, in a sense, discuss in this class is should the government tax more or should we create greater incentives 
for people to give more. So in a sense, when you give money, you get a tax deduction. And basically you're saying, in a sense, instead of giving my money to the government for them to redistribute, I'm going to choose to give money to this charity. And the government says, okay, it's say I have $10. I can either pay that in taxes or I can give it to a charity. If I give it to a charity, I actually am exempt from paying $10 of taxes. So, yeah. I feel like usually when someone's the first to do something, if they're a pioneer, like they're probably going to do it. Like we're going to change the method of how we do it so much since then, and they're probably going to get it wrong the first time. But it's kind of crazy to me that it was like kind of an uncharted territory, but he did it so well that now we even do it the same way. Yeah, that's a great observation. Others, I saw another. Yeah. I think it's great to see how long his work has been still alive today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at Carnegie Mellon University, mm -hmm. that's very, very prestigious. And throughout different universities, there are a lot of libraries, a lot of buildings named after him yeah. because of what his work has been uh, from so far back. Sure, yeah. And so Carnegie Hall is another major iconic scene in society. And yeah, and if, if you think about it, it's interesting that you see major universities. I mean, Stanford University and Cornell University were started by people with the last name Stanford and Cornell, you know, as people making these contributions. And what's interesting, those are the ones we know about, but you also have people like Warren Buffett and what he did. So there has been some shift, Maddie, in how people do it. I mean, not much, because you're right. The basic model is still there. But Warren Buffett, about four years ago, he's I think the wealthiest person in the world. And instead of setting up a foundation or setting up a university or any number of things where he could slap his name onto it, he gave his entire sort of wealth to the Gates Foundation and basically doubled what the, so the Gates Foundation was the second largest foundation and Buffett had the, the largest and he basically gave it all to the Gates Foundation. So I think it was like 25, 30 billion dollars, like a huge amount. What he did was he released control of it. So his name isn't attached to it, but he basically was saying that the Gates Foundation is doing some exceptional stuff. They're going to manage my money just as well as I could. So why duplicate what we're doing and just let's give it all to the Gates Foundation and let them do it. Let them manage it. Let them run it because I trust them. And so that was, again, a radical step in saying, I don't even need my name associated with it. I'm just going to give it away freely. Yeah. I guess I was just curious on why. Basically, in the video, he said that him contributing back to the community was a risk. Oh. Okay. And I'm not really sure why they would consider it a risk. No one has. Yeah. I mean, he's fully well. And I mean, giving back to the community didn't really seem like a risk. Yeah, no, it's just, So, anyone have ideas of why it might be perceived as a risk? Or Is it like back in when he did all of that? Wasn't it more less common for wealthy people to do really anything for the community? Mm -hmm. Instead of just seeing someone actually step out and do something that didn't benefit them really, but benefit everyone else? It would break the social mold. Yeah. We're not supposed to fraternize with the lesser people. Yeah. Like, sometimes whenever people give like a massive amount of money for like a chair board or something like it's a public building or something, sometimes people don't really appreciate it as much as they did because mm -hmm. they're just kind of given freely to them. Mm -hmm. so maybe that was the risk mm -hmm. is that he was given so much money that he didn't know if they were going to actually use it for good or uh -huh. just maybe kind of wasted. Yeah, because you see a lot of times like charitable organizations will come up and they'll kind of get wasted because no one will really use it effectively. Sure. Yeah, I mean, what Maddie was saying, like, the first time you do something, it's an experiment. You don't know how it's going to turn out. It could backfire. And also, I bet you, I guarantee you, he caught, think of the social circles that he was in. These uber elite people, and it's all about maintaining this elite status in society. And he was basically doing something where he was sort of making his peers look bad, or he was exposing their greed. And in any social setting, if you do that, you risk being ostracized. But I think he was doing some magnificent stuff that instead of being ostracized, people embraced him and began to follow suit. Now, not every wealthy person does this. We only notice the ones who do do it. Jessica. But now when we look back on 
Carnegie, but specifically when he and Rockefeller were closer together, mm -hmm. we look back at what they were doing was so amazing and how it's great. But when you look at the historical texts, what they were doing is they were considering these poor people as uneducated masses mm -hmm. beneath them and all this, and they were hoping to raise America to the standards of the French mm -hmm. or the Germans in order for them to look more educated because they couldn't socialize with these people that knew nothing of art or music uh -huh. or had zero education. And that's a lot of the reason that like him and like the five others before, I don't remember the other two, were giving away their money mm -hmm. was because they were so elite at this point, there wasn't a peer group. Uh -huh. There was uh -huh. such a disparity. Sure. Yeah. So is that good, bad, or just a social fact? I think I don't think it could be bad necessarily, mm -hmm. other than they're making a preconceived notion that just because these people are less educated or have less exposure to an offer or, mm -hmm. or something like that, that they are less worthy. But I also think that now we're able to look back at it as good, but then it was really me saying I'm better than you and now I'm going to not help you out of wanting to help you, but I'm doing it to help me so that I don't look down with it around me. Well, I, I would sort of say they did have peers. There's always been an elite class and, and they had mixed motives. I mean, it was wise for Ford to pay people high wages and, and give away money because then more people could afford cars and buy cars. So it helped his business. And in fact, just a year ago, so the, the president of the Ford Foundation is Darren Walker. It's really interesting. Darren Walker is an African-American homosexual. He's president of the Ford Foundation. Andrew Carnegie in 1850 wrote the Gospel of Wealth. Darren Walker wrote the New Gospel of Wealth. There's this philanthropic manifesto. And he touches a little bit on what you're talking about, Jets, but even goes further. And he says, listen, the reason why Andrew Carnegie and all these people like Ford, why philanthropy exists is because income inequality is so expansive. The amounts, the difference between the lowest income people and the highest income people is so wide. Such that that's why philanthropy exists because income inequality exists, and yet then philanthropy's job is to reduce income inequality effectively, or reduce some types of social inequality. And it seems strange in a sense you make a deal with the devil of saying, well, we're going to allow income inequality so that we can have philanthropy so that then we can reduce income inequality. And it's a very interesting piece that he writes as the president of the Ford Foundation. So it's not his money, but he's been entrusted to be a steward of this money. And in many ways, he embodies some of the social inequality that was generated as a result of these uber-wealthy people. And so philanthropy is not all good in its origins of where that wealth came from. I mean, so you look at Duke University is an example where the money came from the tobacco industry or other famous people generated their wealth through having slaves and through their agricultural business. And so this money that they have was achieved through ways that now we look at and say, I don't know if I can support that. And so there's these mixed feelings. So I certainly don't want to paint a picture that philanthropists and philanthropy are all good. Or if you think of like Mark Zuckerberg, he's doing something even more innovative, where again, a year ago, he set up an LLC. Instead of a private foundation, he set up a private company to be his foundation, basically. The way he did it was very innovative, but also people are questioning it, saying, well, wait, typically when you give money to a foundation, it's gone. You can't touch it. What he basically did was take a huge amount of his wealth and put it in a separate company that, in a sense, at any point, he can go back and retrieve it so he hasn't sort of fully given away but he's saying actually it's more liquid in this form and I can adjust where it goes people are saying but is that really giving it away or is it just more of a tax shelter for you so it's much more complex than just like oh isn't Andrew Carnegie wonderful he gave away all his money we need to have some sort of a critical view of it versus just sort of saying it's all good but I will say which is the social fact is that that was the starting point of this new way of thinking about philanthropy and it's sort of it's set into motion the entire nonprofit sector because if you think of the nonprofit sector most of it relies on contributions
contributions, non-governmental contributions. And so a way to think about the nonprofit sector is that it's described as like the third leg of a stool. So you have the private sector and you have government. And if you think of a stool, it has three legs. And if it only has two legs, it's unstable. And the nonprofit sector is that third leg of the stool. It's sort of the safety net. And in a sense where if if the private sector is not addressing a particular need and the government is inadequately addressing a need, that's where the nonprofit sector sort of steps in and addresses the need. So like hospitals, like medical care wasn't being provided in adequate ways to the broad public. And so most hospitals are nonprofit organizations that were set up through philanthropic giving. So a lot of times it was churches that set up hospitals. So you have St. Jude's Hospital or all these other Presbyterian Hospital of Cincinnati, different hospitals that were started as nonprofits. And basically it was the safety net that wasn't being met by the private sector and wasn't being met by the government. So then the social sector stepped in and set up these. And they got good at it such that this next point is that oftentimes the government says, well, we're not very good at providing this social service. And so we're going to issue grants to nonprofits. So it's in a sense a job that we more or less should be doing, but you're doing it better than us. And so we're going to give you the money to make it happen. So that's where all these government grants come from. It's basically the government is outsourcing public goods that they should be providing. So even like charter schools or any type of nonprofit that's getting government funding, that's getting a government grant, it's not because they're special or something. It's basically the government's just saying, we don't want to do this. It's more cost effective to have you do it. So we're going to have you apply for a grant and then let you do it. You think about the faith-based initiative, which was this big effort. They said, wow, we have all these churches around the country who are doing good things. And if we can just give them more resources, they can do a better job than we can at providing social services to communities. And so that's where the faith-based initiative came from. It's not that the government was pro-religion. It was just they saw a sector of organizations that were providing services that they wouldn't have to provide otherwise and said, well, let's funnel resources to them. So this is sort of a brief history. Now, if you come to all the way up to the 21st century in the sector, the confusing or complicated thing is we have an identity crisis or identity issue. The non nonprofit sector. I forget who it was who went home and said that they want to be a nonprofit management major. Who was that? Was that you? So if, if you think about it, what are the associations with nonprofits or the nonprofit sector? What are just some of the stigmas that you guys hear? Yeah. My parents were just saying, like, I'm sorry, not I wasn't able to afford myself in the future. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's poverty, in a sense, or, or not having a lot of money. Any other things when you, just the, the negative impressions of the nonprofit. Yeah. The organization's low financial success, meaning they don't have, like, actual success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in a sense, the, the beneficiaries of the nonprofit sector, there's no criticism on that end, except for maybe that it's mismanaged or poorly managed. But it's more if you as a professional want to go into this sector, it's sort of like, oh, but you could do so much more. Or, oh, why are you making that sacrifice? Or, oh, that's good that you're going to do that for a couple of years and then go get a real job. So in, in part of it is, it's just how we reference the sector. And one of the poorest ways to identify yourself is to say what you're not. So if you think of the nonprofit sector, it's identified itself based on what it's not. I am known as not making profit. That's a bad way to reference yourself as a sector, but I wanna go through the different ways that the sector is referenced. And we're gonna begin to think, what's a way to rebrand the sector so that you can go get a career in it and feel like, okay, this is an affirmed and valued profession. So some people call it the voluntary sector as a way to describe the field or the broader sector, and mainly because it relies on volunteers. Whether it's paid volunteers or unpaid volunteers, the (laughs) sort of the heart behind the sector is that it's driven by voluntary action. Another way that's described is the independent or third sector, and so that's that sort of the third leg of the stool. It's the the third sector and that it's neither the government or business sector is another way that people reference it. Then, like I said, the nonprofit or not-for-profit sector, and again, that it's not focused on 
profits. And then we have the charitable sector, where the main focus is providing direct relief, like providing charity, and that's distinctive. So it's, it distinguishes itself from, say, the private sector or the government, where this sector's primary focus is providing charity. Another one is the philanthropic sector, in that in order to sustain itself, it relies on charitable donations, relies on people voluntarily giving their money. So again, the sector is sort of going through this identity crisis of like, how should we name ourselves? Because they're not satisfied with nonprofit, but every other one sort of falls short. So civil society sector, this is more the, the bigger, expansive, like, you know, citizens seeking to improve their communities. So it's this broad arena of anything that is done by citizens to improve their community. So it, it again, goes back to giving their time, talents, or treasures to their community. Tax-exempt sector is another name, another way that it's referred to, and it's basically emphasizes their tax-exempt status. So it's in private sector, you pay taxes on all of the money that comes in. Nonprofits don't have to pay taxes. And then the social sector, where it's the, the focus is to strengthen the social fabric of a community. I think that was all of them. Let's see. No, one more. Non-government organizations. So this is more how it's referred to at an international scope is NGOs. So as you look at this, none of them really kind of grab you, but you need one to identify and you need one in a sense, you know, even SPIA wrestles with this. You know, we described it as a nonprofit management major. So we've fallen into the same trap of like, we're already setting ourselves up to sort of be second class by saying nonprofit management major versus maybe sort of presenting it in a way that's more attractive and appealing to a wider audience. So what I'm going to do is I think we're going to do the Socrative. Yes. So if you guys can jump on your Socrative app, I, I want to know how do you think the sector should be referenced? If you're going to select a name for the sector, what sector, what name would you argue for or even would you provide there? What one would you advocate for? Yeah, Cameron. Social sector and why so? I just feel like it kind of fits because you have the public sector, private. Yeah. Other people, what would you say? Hannah? I think like in general, the types of organizations that are being set up are for the general public, which mm -hmm. is like, like they're not exclusive. And so I think social sort of encaptures that, that everyone understands like for everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sort of like the socialist. Mm -hmm. For everyone, the whole. Yeah, that's good. Brandon. In fact, we talked about how philanthropy is not just giving money, but it's also giving talent and skill yes. and everything. Yeah. And that encompasses a lot more than just signing a check and mm -hmm. giving to a company, but volunteering encompasses a lot more of these hmm. uh, topics than mm -hmm. just giving away money and spreading it between uh, the different organizations or different uh, work that needs to be done. Yeah, no, that's a good argument. Yeah, Abby. I'm between the independent sector and the philanthropic sector. Uh -huh. Kind of going off what Nancy just said, it's, it's tough because I'm, I'm thinking independent sector because I think that would be better received by mm. the business sector. The government sector is mm -hmm. almost more respected, but yeah. I think that the philanthropic sector is more true to what the sector actually does. Actually does, yeah. So it's tough because it's like... You kind of have to live up to this standard or buff yourself up bigger than you actually are. Uh huh, uh huh. Yeah. And the end, Maddie. I like social sector. I'm not surprised it hasn't like, already been taken. It just sounds like it just makes so much sense. Uh huh. And I found this way basically. Like, what sounds the best? Like, if you say like tax exempt sector. It sounds like an accountant or something. Yeah. <laughs> or if you say like, like charitable sector, it kind of seems like, to me personally, like, it kind of sounds like you're not doing anything. Handling people's charity, mm -hmm. and like discounts all the work that you do, or social yeah. sector, it's like it's like half of all. I don't know, it's like a huge part of life. Uh huh. Uh huh. So. Yeah, Bailey. I agree with her. I mean, because the social sector, I feel like the social aspect of nonprofits is such a huge part of it. Because mm -hmm. I mean, you've got to be out there, you know, like building relationships with other businesses and business people that are influential in your area. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like putting on fundraisers is like a big part, and that's like all the social aspect. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I would say social sector as well, only because when I think of social sector, I just think of community. Uh -huh. I think of in order for any business to be prosperous or any nonprofit per se, I would just say that you can't really do it alone. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Collective. Indeed, community is. Yeah. It's a collective thing, so uh, that's why I would choose social sector. Now I'm like super curious to know what the whole class, <laughs> what the breakdown is. I'll find it later on today, so... 
Was there another viewpoint out there or one that we haven't considered that you're like, we need to? I mean, I also think that like just the nonprofit sector is a good way to describe it because I mean, while it, it may not be like the most like listening, I guess, I mean, we are like nonprofit focused, mm -hmm. you know, so. I think that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a reason why SPIA is a nonprofit. So, the only reason I don't like nonprofit is because it gives all that negative connotation that the organization can't make money. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Like, in a sense, you are having a profit, it's just like how you're using that yes. money for the organization. So, like, it confuses people. And that's why I like the social sector because it does, like, in its name, it describes what the organization focuses on. Mm -hmm. It's society, like, wanting to better the society, but the only other one that I would go for is probably philanthropic. It doesn't have a negative connotation. Yeah. I have two questions. Yeah. First one is, what do you think it should be called? And the second one is, do you think that it changes, or does your opinion on what it should be called change according to what the organization is? So mm -hmm. you mentioned the Mark Zuckerberg company mm -hmm. he started, or if you're talking about hybrids, do you think that... Yeah. Change your opinion. Yeah. No. And I'll, I'll I'll share what my perspective is, but it's only my perspective. But I want to hear your guys' first. So, and when I give the answer, I'll address the second question. Yes. So does it just come down to a perspective thing, like just basically how we perceive the word nonprofit or social sector? Because when I see social sector, it just makes me feel better. It makes me, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, does it matter? I mean, is this is this just sort of a, a random exercise, or actually, does it matter what the sector is called? Hannah? Just coming back to perception, I think the name matters so much because perception is everything. Like, mm -hmm. If people don't like the way that a name sounds, they're not going to get involved in it. They think that not profit means like they're not going to make money. Mm -hmm. A lot of people won't want to get involved in it, and so I think that that is what matters. Like, even though all of those words essentially mean the same organization, it changes the meaning entirely. Mm -hmm. Because not-profit people think not going to make any money. Like, charitable, I think I need to give away a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. And I think it just changes everything about it. It sets expectations, in a sense. Yeah. I like social sector because it can be all-encompassing. Uh-huh. It's like, you read off the list of names, it's like, can a civil society sector be like non for profit like I feel like some of the names eliminate um, things that that sector could be mm -hmm, or can, mm -hmm. can and can't be and I feel like with social sector it's like a social sector can be taxes and mm -hmm. for civil society and philanthropic yeah it's sort of it's, it's the largest umbrella that's still accurate right I think the name only matters because we as a people allow it to matter uh-huh but in terms of organizational or just the nonprofit sector being what we want it to be, I don't feel like the name has any relevance in that part. Mm -hmm. I just thought I'd go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Well, and so you bring up a good point. It's, it only matters because we say it matters. But because we say it matters, if we want to be successful or if we want to see the sector or the field thrive, then we sort of have to play by social rules. You know, you could sit there and say, I don't play by those rules. Then chances are you're going to be in the corner <laughs> playing by yourself. And so, I mean, I get what you're saying. Like, they're silly rules, but they are sort of the rules at play. And if you want to engage society in an effective way, then you sort of have to think about, well, how am I going to be perceived in that arena? My sense is that's part of the reason why I'm engaging in this discussion, because we have a certain set of criteria for nonprofits. Like, you see how much they're making? Like, and, and it's like they're actually not making that much relative if they're in the private sector having a similar level job. And yet we sit there and critique it or we say, wow, that's a fancy new building. Like, and you're a nonprofit? Like, what gives? And it's like, why do we have that sort of critique or criticism? My strong bias, I think, after thinking about this and being in the sector is I would advocate for social sector mainly because, like you were saying, it has a, a winsome sort of novel, innovative, entrepreneurial component to it. It actually causes people, like they sort of get it. They're like, oh, the social sector, like 
like you, you sort of have a feel for what it is, but it, it causes you to say, well, so that's interesting. Well, like, what do you do exactly? Like in what ways? Or like I'm a social entrepreneur or I just started a social enterprise. You know, both those terms sort of evoke more conversation. Whereas in a sense, if you say I work for a nonprofit, oftentimes that can be a conversation stopper. You're like, oh, okay. You know, but like if you if you say like I'm a social entrepreneur, people are like they know entrepreneur, they know social, they're like, huh, like in what way? Like what or you know, I started up my own uh, social enterprise. And so it's this field of yeah, Maddie? Just like does there need to be a decision amongst like nonprofits like, okay, we're gonna start saying social sector or like is it cool if we just say that? Like, can we just, like, say it? You can just say it. Well, so, okay, so where this actually matters on the ground, like, uh, USC, the Price School of Public Policy, which is SPIA's competitor, they just started a, a, a master's degree in social sector leadership. So do you want to get a master's in nonprofit management or a master's in social sector leadership? You know, if you're picking where you want to get a degree. So obviously, I'm not a huge branding or marketing person, but I get that it's important if I want to advance the goals of my organization, I want to put my best foot forward. And, and so the field will shift in the way that it's portrayed when leaders in the field sort of step out and reframe what the field is and what they do. Tom, do you think that it will lead to more hybrids or more interaction between for-profit and non-profit businesses? Yeah. Working together more. Well, and, and that's why I would be an advocate of social sector because, as Cameron said, it doesn't pigeonhole it as, oh, nonprofits, you don't make a profit, which is not accurate. I mean, some of you asked the question, how can a nonprofit pay a salary or own a building if they don't make a profit? They do make a profit and they do have revenue. A lot of the revenue comes from donations, but they, in a sense, have a profit. It's how, what they do with that money. So in a sense, they can't redistribute it to shareholders or they can't use it to, to pad their own pockets, like increase stock value. They have to reinvest it in the organization. And so nonprofit is actually a misnomer because they actually make money. It's just what they can do with those profits. I mean, we'll talk about this a lot more of, of social sector, but I just want you to think about it. Even you can even try it. You know, next time you're talking with someone, they say, what are you going to what do you plan to do when you graduate? And you can say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really I'm tempted to get a job in the social sector. And they'll be like, what? Social work? And then you're like, no. And then, you, you know, but you got you got to sort of play with it to see how it how it plays out. How many registered nonprofits are there in the U.S.? What do you guys throw out some numbers of what you think? How big is this sector that we're talking about? 200 million? I'll say 10 million. 10 million? 10 million and one. This is the price is right. You're like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? Five million. Okay, so I think, let's see if I put it up. 1.6 million nonprofits. So you guys were like very generous about it. So, but still, if you think about it, there's basically 330 million people in the US. So that can give you a little bit of a framework, but 1.6 million registered nonprofits. Now the way that's broken down is, is important to know. So 1 million are public charities. And that's, when we think of nonprofits, that's typically what we're thinking of is all the little mother hubbards, and all the different service providing nonprofits. When we think of the nonprofit sector, that's what we think of is these one million charities. Charities meaning like providing for people. So hospitals, churches, schools, museums, theater, they, they serve the public. And the interesting thing is that they employ 7% of the country's workforce. So when you hear about the unemployment numbers or the employment numbers, 7% of everyone working in the U.S. works for one of these 50C3s. Again, most of them are hospitals, churches, and schools are the largest employers of this sector. So then 100,000 are private foundations, and that's the Gates Foundation and all these sort of really big ones, but even small ones. And even these days, individuals can set up their own private foundation as a cost-effective way to give their money. And then 150,000 are advocacy organizations. And so these are more like the activists, like the NRA or the Planned Parenthood or any group that in a sense is lobbying the government to shape public
public policy. And so they're a distinct group. I think it's, yeah, the 50C4. They're a distinct category when their actual aim is to change public policy versus to provide services. But they still fall under the umbrella of a nonprofit. And again, you can write these down if you want. I'm going to give you these slides. I don't want you to like frantically try and get all this. And then 500,000 are classified as other types of nonprofits. So a fraternity is a nonprofit. It's a social club, professional associations. If any of your parents are realtors and they belong to the National Association of Realtors, that's a nonprofit. It's a professional association. The Dance Marathon group is a nonprofit. Any type of just social group that sort of gathers together, they don't necessarily provide any public service, but they serve the members that they bring together. So, and that's about 500,000 of them. And then there's also lots of others that aren't even registered. So churches don't have to register. So we don't even know how many churches are out there. Oh yeah, so I put that, religious congregations. So there's over 300,000 churches in the U.S. And they these aren't even counted in that number of 1.6 million. And then there's a lot of unincorporated grassroots self-help organizations that are sort of on the verge of becoming nonprofits, but they haven't officially signed up and registered as a nonprofit. So even though we say 1.6 million, it's probably almost 2 million if you add up all these extra organizations that are out there. So it's big and that's why it matters. And then the other thing is just the growth of the field. So over 90% of the nonprofits that exist today didn't exist in 1950. So the sector is growing and it's, it's growing tremendously. Even the number of jobs in the nonprofit sector is growing tremendously. So this is another way of categorizing the nonprofit sector. Like I showed you advocacy groups and social clubs and stuff like that. This is a this is an IRS thing, but we're actually going to use it for our class. So this is called the Nas National Taxonomy of Exempt Entities, which is a wonderful name. <laughs> they need to rebrand themselves. But the categories are important because as you guys start up your nonprofit or think about starting up your nonprofit, it's probably going to be in one of these eight categories. And so I want you to begin thinking, okay, am I interested in the arts and culture and humanities aspect of the sector? Or am I more passionate about education or the environment or health or human services or religion or uh, public benefit? So next Thursday, so a week from today, we're going to be dividing people up into their teams to start their nonprofit. But this will help you maybe to orient like, oh, yeah, I fall into one of these two categories. That would be the type of nonprofit that I'd want to start up. Or you might even begin thinking, I have a nonprofit that I want to start up, and okay, it fits in education or under that umbrella. So this just gives you a good framework for thinking about, okay, what type of nonprofit am I going to be interested in starting? So I'm going to go through just some of the unique features of nonprofits in that how they differentiate themselves from the private sector and the government sector. And the first is that they're self-governing. And I say that, and this is a strange thing, but there is no CEO of a nonprofit in the sense of like there isn't someone who has authority over or like in the in the public sector there isn't a governor or a president who has sort of where it's a top-down thing and the unique thing about nonprofits is that they're self-governing in that think of a good example would be your sorority you elect officers in your sorority and then those elected people or the people who are nominated govern the group so it's all within you guys decide how you want to do it and you decide well we're going to have the president be a president for one year and then there's going to be another person come in. And, but the idea is that you decide how the organization is going to be governed and run. There isn't sort of a setup of this is how it has to be. It's all internally derived. And that's true with, with all nonprofits is this idea of autonomy that when you set up a nonprofit, you sort of set up how it's going to be managed and functioned. And a lot of times they do set up boards because that's just a good thing for oversight. But the key thing is is that you can choose however you want to govern it in any way you want. There's no mandates on how to govern. And also there's no owners or stockholders. So no one owns a nonprofit. This might seem kind of strange or like, you know, because you go to McDonald's and it's clear someone owns McDonald's and then they can at some point sell McDonald's to someone else. Like there's always an owner. But with a nonprofit, there's no, in a sense, assets that one person owns and it's not stockholders that own it. So it's this sort of free flowing entity. And again, we don't really think about it until like maybe you want to transition it or give it away or something like that. But there's there's no one that sort of says, I own this nonprofit. It's, it's something that exists out there. 
And again, it's different from the private sector in that way. And the two things that are, are key or important is that it's exempt from being taxed. And basically what tax exemption means is that if they have revenue coming in, like donations, they don't have to pay taxes on it. Or if they own a building, most companies that own buildings have to pay property taxes. They don't have to pay property taxes. So they don't have to pay any type of taxes. And then the second part is that when donations come in, if you give to a nonprofit, that's a tax exempt contribution. So whereas if you give to McDonald's to get a hamburger, you know, there's no exemption from it. But if you give money to the YMCA, you reduce the amount of taxes that you have to pay. So we're going to end with that.